Welcome to the inner world of filmmaking. I'm your host, Tammy McGarrow. I'm a writer, director, editor, and a podcast producer. In this show, I will interview filmmakers in all facets of production and distribution. Today, we're talking about the journey of a documentary filmmaker. Today's guest is an editor, producer, director, and teacher of film, Marla Leach. Welcome, and so glad to have you on the show today. Thank you, Tammy. It's great to be here. So I met you in San Francisco when I was playing soccer. One of your friends was playing on our team, and that's how I got an introduction to you. And then later, I helped you out with Radical Harmonies. I was one of the post-production assistants, uh, where back in the day, we were digitizing from tape to a nonlinear system, uh, and I believe it was Avid, right? It was Avid, yeah. Well, it was very incredible because also I come from film, so I learned how to do everything on film literal film, so 8mm and 16mm film, not 35, but when I went to film school and I started making documentaries and short films, it was always on film. So you cut on film, you shot on film, you physically touched the film, right? You used a razor blade to cut it and then you used tape to tape it together and then you used glue to then cement it together and then you sent it out to be processed and then they would turn it into a, uh, a film that did not have any of those, the glue and the tape were gone. Right, so that's how I learned, and so then moving over to, to doing um, other other documentaries, and then Radical Harmonies, which was a, a feature documentary on the history of women's music. We had all sorts of formats that everything was filmed on, including stuff that was on old old VHS from really back in the day, like twenty years before. So we had to transfer all that VHS, clean it all up. We didn't do it; we had the lab do it. We had beta and three-quarter inch. We even had something, some stuff on three-quarter inch, um, you know, half-inch, VHS, and then the other little teeny f- format, which was a something, eight millimeter or something like that. I remember what it was called, but it was another format. So you had to had all those formats that you didn't have to get digitized, clean, cleaned up and digitized, and then stuck into the computer um, so that we could edit on all these different formats, which also had different frame you know, different frame rates, and also different aspect ratios. So you had to get those all to match. At that time, I was only editing on Avid Media Composer and teaching that, because there was no Final Cut Pro. There was Premiere, but it was uh, pretty eh, so-so. Now it's fantastic, but back then, not so good. And then there was also uh, this really weird editing system. I don't remember the name of it. But built into the system, you had uh, transitions like the, it would be a football throw, and that would be the, the dissolve or the wipe that you would have. It would be a football or a cheerleader. A cheerleader would cheer in, in black, and she'd be all in black. And then it would be the transition would be this cheerleader would cheer, and then it would go from one image over to the next image. You know, it was the weirdest thing. The toaster. That's what it was called, the toaster. Oh, my God. That was crazy editing. Anyway. Do you find that as an editor today that you're still having to deal with media on film and stuff? Or do you think everybody's pretty much gotten it onto a digital format? Well, if it's shot on film, that's actually terrific because that means your quality is already going to be pretty darn high, of course, because the people who are shooting on film, my experience, and I, I this may be a misnomer, but... Um, People who shoot, on, who learn to shoot on film and who still shoot on film have a shooting ratio that's much smaller. So you might have a 3 to 1 ratio or 2 to 1, 3 to 1, 4 to 1 ratio, something like that, versus somebody who's shooting on digital 
which you can just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot, and which means your pre-planning isn't always as good as someone who shoots on film. Because when you shoot on film, it's super duper expensive. So every shot counts. Every shot matters in terms of monetary expenses. So you have to be super careful. So your story, your, typically your storyboarding is very thorough and done in advance. And of, co- of course, advance, that's just a given. Your shot list is done completely in advance. And the, the lighting is so specific to also film stock, which is you don't have to worry about that much intense detail when you're shooting on something like the black magic or some, you know, some of these other things you have to worry about, you know, your f-stops and your lenses and your ISOs and all that stuff. But when you start talking about shooting on color film, black and white film, you know, when you buy film, your ISO is fixed. It doesn't change. You can't just one minute be at 1600 and the next minute you're at 400. Like you can on digital, you can switch your ISO every shot if you want but on film, you, you can't do that. So typically when people film on film, when they've gotten enough experience, that it's, it's actually extremely well articulated. So by the time it gets to you and it's already been digitized, you, the, you don't have to typically do as much fixing, I guess, because, because the people take more time in the beginning rather than the thought of like, well, fix it in post, which you can, of course. You can color, you can color correct anything. But you should try perhaps not to do that as much. <laughs> well, what do you what do you think about that phrase that you know people will say on set? Oh, we could just fix it in post. I mean, how does that feel for an editor? Do you think? Oh, yeah, we can. Or oh, please, you know. I think that came into more existence during when we had systems like Final Cut Pro and Premiere and all these systems and Avid, because you could fix it in post. But that philosophy of that is to not take the time for pre-production, to not take the time for planning, to not take the time to storyboard, to not take the time to really plan your shots, really diagram out the lighting. So so with the philosophy of fixing it in post, it may be cheaper in some senses because you're really only working with the editor and the colorist at that point versus, say, trying to just get that amazing shot that you want, that you, you've tried and you tried on set and you can't, you can't get it and you have all these people there and it's costing a certain amount of money per hour for all the actors, for all the crew and for all the locations. Okay, that's cheaper, yes, to, to just rely on an editor and a colorist to quote-unquote fix it in post. But the mentality around that and the, and the philosophy around that is that anything can be fixed in post. Don't take the time to do all the prep. Take the time in the end, at the end of the session versus the beginning of the session when you would not have to really rely on fixing it in post because you've already really planned it out in the beginning. And the mindset of that, from my experience, is much more, I guess it's just more thorough. It's a different kind of approach. It's more thorough. It, it really lets you see exactly what you want while you're filming. And right now you can add, with a LUT, you can, the lookup table, you can even add whatever filter, whatever kind of filtering you want. You can add it during the filming session so that you can see what it's actually going to look like before you put it on permanently. So you have all sorts of options now you didn't have before. But the more you can do in pre-production and during the shoot, it's just going to facilitate at the end, when, you, when you're in your editing session, it's going to facilitate the whole thing because you don't have to sit there and take forever just to color correct. You really have planned it out so much in advance that when you're there shooting, you know what you want, you know what, what the look is that you want, 
and hence, hopefully you've even rehearsed your actors. You, have, you didn't just go in and say, okay, let's do the scene, which is what you find a lot of people do with video. Not a lot. Enough. People do on video. Let's do one rehearsal and then shoot it. Well, in film, because it costs so much money to do that, you, you didn't want to do that. You didn't want to just like have one rehearsal and let's go. You want to really develop what it is you want for that shot from the actors with the rehearsals and you get the look right and then you don't have to go back and try to fix everything later. And everything may not be able to be fixed. Let's just face that. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Um, let's take a step back and why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself mm -hmm. and uh, how you got into filmmaking. So I went to UC Davis, and my original intention was to be an international journalist, an international reporter, and also a semi-pro tennis player. So I was on the UC Davis tennis team, on the freshman team, also doing some cross-training with the UC Davis women's soccer team. And I would say that my number one love of all that stuff really was tennis, that I wanted to just fly with tennis and then see where that went. Would I become a coach? Would I become a trainer? What, what would I end up doing? So international journalism was something that I loved in the sense of I had traveled already a fair amount at a young age. I already knew Spanish. Um, I wasn't certainly bilingual, but I, I certainly had enough exposure. And so I thought, oh, yeah, I want to travel around the world and, and do, um, you know, journalism. And then I tore my ligament and everything got the entire tennis career flew out the window. And I was taking a film course at that time and... Also having to take micro-econ, macro-econ, calculus one, calculus two for my international relations degree, which was crazy. UC Davis, you had like 300, 400 people per class, barely ever knew the teacher, just knew the TAs. And I just felt like, really, is this really what I want to be doing? And so I just did a whole reevaluation after I tore my ligament, realized I was not going to be a semi-pro tennis player. <laughs> and... Um, and then when I took my film class, I was, I was, I really felt like this was the, this was the medium that you could do anything. You could be an international journalist and do, you know, biographies slash documentaries slash nature shows, etc. Or you could make uh, fiction. You could do fiction pieces. You could do political pieces. You could do uh, anything you wanted. You could do with film. And it was incorporating, if you want to be a musician, and I was also a musician at that time, um, still am. I could even make my own music, which I did for my first four films. I made my own music. So it was the one field I felt you could incorporate any single thing you wanted and get your message out, whatever that message was. It might just be artistic. I shouldn't say just artistic, but it might just be your own personal artistic vision. Or it could be a story you want to tell. Or it could be a political thing you want somebody to pay attention to and get up and take action. Whatever it is, film encapsulated that way more than international uh, journalism or international relations at the time. And I didn't have to keep taking things like micro, macro, econ, calc, and all these courses that did not seem to relate to being out in the field. So I wanted more hands-on. I wanted to be more a hands-on player. I didn't want to be so much caught up in the, let's take all these classes in political science and all this other stuff so I understand the economic systems of all these places. I wanted to be filming doing it now, doing it right now. So that's when I switched over to film. And that was my sophomore year of college at UC Davis, which didn't have an extensive film program. But that's where I learned how to, uh, how to um, film first on, on Super 8. Then I went over, after I graduated, I went over to um, 
UC Santa Cruz and did a graduate program in film production. So literally shooting on film. So eight millimeter and 16 millimeter film. And shooting on film was amazing, but I was broke. So I couldn't do it as extensively as I would have wanted to. And you had to rotate roles, which was great. So I got to be a director. I learned how to do the cinematography. I learned how to do the audio, which was separately done on this uh, a device called a Nagra. So you learn how to do all that. And then when you edit, you edit physically the film by hand with your hands in a, in a darker room, editing, cutting the film part and then cutting the sound part separately. Then you cut those in and you send those over to the lab. So that's how I learned. And then when video came about, I actually sort of lived in my van a little bit, staying at friends' houses for six months so that I could save up money to buy those VHS camcorders that had first come out. Um, before that, I, I started on three-quarter inch, the big old U-Matics, big old cameras, big old tapes, and batteries were huge to boot. And that's when I first started shooting on video. After that, I went to San Francisco State for a master's degree in broadcasting, and that was all on video. And then from there... I know that you've produced a lot of films. Um, what made you want to get into producing? So even in those early film school days, I did produce and direct and edit my own stuff and shoot my own stuff. But then when you get into film school, like when you move into film school slash your master's program, you are taking a specific role on. So when I was at, um, when I moved over to San Francisco State, you had to pick a role that you were going to do. So my first class was music video. I wanted to produce and direct a music video. That's exactly the direction I actually saw that I would probably go in was music video. So I produced and directed that. And I had a team of myself and four men. And we ended up making this really cool video, uh, music video for this band called the Blazing Redheads. And that went on to win a student Emmy Award, which was really cool. And two of those men, I ended up creating a documentary called uh, Love Makes a Family, like a couple years after that, about the about gay parenting. So there were three different couples in that, and that, that got um, picked up by a distributor. And the American Psychological Association, is, I, I believe, uh, used that in different seminars to teach people about um, different types of gay parenting. So that was actually very successful. And then from that same original class, which was my first class of my master's program, one of the men in there was doing deaf video, video for the deaf community. And he's, he was a, a sign language interpreter. And so he brought me on and I did a lot of work in creating videos for the deaf community as a cinematographer, as a writer, etc. And so that was another branch that we went in, in that direction. And, you know, when it comes to documentary filmmaking, it's pretty extensive. I mean, you really have to, do you feel like um, you really make the movie in post, you know, when you're putting it all together? Or do you, when you're coming up with an idea of a film, do you feel like what you filmed, you already saw it, or it became different once it, once you put it all together? Well, I think that very much depends on the film because Radical Harmonies, almost everything was already shot. I was hired as an editor. I wasn't brought on as a producer. And there were other editors. Um, Lisa Ginsburg ended up fi finishing the film as, a, as an editor that she was originally going to do it, the whole film, and then I got brought on to do it, and then she finished it out. And then we had what was called an online editor who did all the coloring and added all the effects and stuff like that. But that was something you had to do completely in post because the interviews were already done. So I couldn't, they, they had already taken care of that as the producer, the director, cinematographer, etc. 
but they already knew what the project was about, the history of women's music. So as an editor, all I was given was all these tapes. And we created an outline, and we sort of, we worked with it more in the sense of chronological at first. Like, this is what happened in the 70s. This is what happened in the 80s. That's how we started, and then we ended up changing it and moving it more into sort of chapters that dealt with different themes uh, having to do with that. But you didn't know. When we were starting, we didn't even know because it was just a whole ton of tapes that we needed to all listen to. And that's when you came on also, when you had to listen to every single interview and and watch all the concerts, you know, starting looking at the early Indigo Girls, early Tracy Chapman, early, um, just just like Holly Near, all this early stuff, Sweet Honey and the Rock, etc. And you had to listen to every single thing and get that all logged up. And so you could start to formulate something. But when, when I do documentaries, I, because I'm going to be the producer and the director typically, and also one of the editors, if not, maybe I'm the sole editor or I bring on another editor. I already know what I want. Having been an editor, then when you're a director, I think you, you, your tendency is that, you know, you know how to plan it. So when you go in and edit, it's a little bit easier for you versus going in and just kind of Let's see what we get. No, it was very, I'm always pretty planned in advance because I already sort of editing as I go. And so, but you also don't know what you're going to get. So we started out a documentary on mercury, the uh, mercury poisoning, and we would get one interview and then somebody would tell us about somebody else we need to interview. And I didn't know anything about certain subjects per se, other than reading about them. And like we interviewed a guy who got mercury poisoning from having dental extractions. And I, and I didn't know much about that. And so we went in to interview him and I had these questions, but when I met him, we changed the questions because his story was so intense, so personal and so key to what we were making. We didn't end up finishing the film because a PBS station had recently completed a story very similar to what we were creating about the mercury poisoning and and the the level of mercury toxicity in the Bay Area. So we ended up not finishing that movie because they had a lot more resources than we did and they created this great show. And so we didn't finish that film. But going in, some most of the time I know what I'm looking for and what I'm asking about. And then another time I'll go in thinking that's what I want and then it turns into something else. Much deeper, much, which is beautiful because you don't know what you're what you're going to get until you meet that person sometimes right yeah no no i i get that even from doing the podcast it's like you know i'm talking to them and then they say something and i'm like huh let me ask some more questions over here you know so it is kind of a wonderful experience and it's got to be a labor of love documentary oh, work, I think, don't you think i think definitely unless you're ken burns hi ken burns who gets these great contracts to make money, uh, no, I mean, get paid is what I mean. He gets paid to do all these incredible documentaries. But most people who are doing documentary film, either they're scrambling to get grants and they're writing to ITVS and various places to get grants and they're hoping they get them so that they can at least get themselves paid, pay for the music rights so they can use music other than what you create yourself or other than the the freebie library out the internet. Like if you want a song by you know, Willie Nelson or something or whomever, you, you're you going to have to pay for that. So you need to make sure you have the money to do that. Or you want to use a f- photograph of somebody and you need to make sure you have the rights to that. That's going to probably cost you money. Um, so you need to make sure you have a budget for those kind of things. And if you don't, and 
then you're probably not going to pay yourself and you're going to use whatever money you have to create that documentary. So for example, Michael Moore, I mean, from what I recall, hearing him speak once, he of course got a, a lot of a lot of success with his very first documentary, but about Flint, Michigan, I don't know if that was his first one, but he got a lot of success about that. But then when he was later on in his, his life, what is it? Um, something Columbine. I think it was that film. I can't remember, but I watched it. I listened to him speak about it at, at Santa Cruz. And he was talking about how he basically had to put his house on uh, second mortgage, the house or something like that, or get an equity loan or something to, to pay for the movie because it's true. But that's not just in documentary. I think that's for people who even do their first features. Even Ava DuVernay, like she was a publicist, so she made money at a job so that when she decided to become a filmmaker at whatever it was, 35 or something, she had already had a successful career and she had money saved to make her first feature and pay for it herself. You look at other directors struggling, you know, how did they make their first movie? Quentin Tarantino has his own story for Reservoir Dogs. He'd already sold two scripts before that and uh, True Romance and uh, Natural Born Killers. But that still wasn't enough money to make, really to make Reservoir Dogs in the level that it got made. That that basically was Harvey Keitel coming in with Lawrence Bender and other people that came and got the money together. But that first feature is like, how does that first feature get made? And documentaries, you can make them for really not very much money. You don't, if you're not using archival footage, you're not using archival um, photographs, you, you don't need to get that photograph of Martin Luther King um, with Malcolm X or whatever, which is going to cost probably a lot of money. Or you don't need to have a song by Beyonce, etc. You can make documentaries for a pretty decent price that you can probably come up with. If, if you're working and you have a job, you'll probably pay for your own documentary. There's, there's, you're probably not going to get a bunch of grants with that first one. But if your first one's successful, then you can apply for grants and get money to do it like that. But I guess I would say it's probably smart not to give up your day job yeah. <laughs> if you want to be a documentary filmmaker. Well, yeah, at least in the beginning, <laughs> unless yeah. you hit something big with, with something that you've done. Talk me through, like, you're a producer, you also direct and edit uh, a lot of your films and your documentaries. Like, how do you go in, and you were alluding to that pre-production is so important, um, how do you kind of go into a project? Can you walk me through one of your projects, how you came up with it, and walk me through a little bit of the beginning? So we made a movie called... Uh, it's about the American Basketball League, which is the women's basketball league that existed before the WNBA. So the film is called Breaking the Glass. But the title, I do want to also say that titles are very important. We didn't have the title at first. We just knew that it was going to be about this league. And the reason it was going to be about this league is because I was making a lot of films. I was teaching film, teaching sound, production, etc., and editing. And my friend was working for the new league, the ABL. And she said, this needs to be documented. This is, this is historical. And so she is the one who talked to me about putting together this video, this documentary about the ABL. And she got me access to the players. She got me access to the coaches. She got me access to incredible, incredible people. Tara Vandeveer, Teresa Edwards. I mean, I can go on and on and on about all these incredible people I met. And then who, all the athletes who had come back from the Olympics who helped create that league. So I had access to all those people. The story had started out being about the creation of the league. That's what we were going to do. This incredible, successful league that was getting sponsors, 
because the NBA, the WNBA didn't exist yet. And the NBA at that time, from my understanding, did not, wasn't ready to invest in a women's league. So the ABL got created from the athletes from the Olympics from that year. Is that 1996? I have to remember. And, and another Olympic athlete who helped them put all that together. So they created this league and paid the women very well and got this league going on. So it's supposed to be about the successes of that. So we had access to game footage. We had access to all the players. We had access to the people who created the league. So we went in and we did all these interviews with the intention of it being about the success of this league. So we already had the idea where it was going. What were we going to show? My friend who was working there helped me to also put the idea together and outline it. And then what happened was the WNBA got created. It caused a big problem for the ABL. So I can't go into all of that because it's a lot of politics and money and stuff and stuff like that. But the focus of the film changed. So during the process of making it, and and again, it was about the success of this league and the women who created it. And, you know, women created league was pretty phenomenal at that time. And so my friend Mark and I were, were talking about what, what would the title be? What could the title be about something like this? And I'd never known that when you take a basketball and you throw it in the back of the, um, and you, you, you trying to do a, what do you call that word? Slam dunk? Hits the back, or, hits the or, back first and then falls into the, like a lay, a layup, right? And you, you hit it so hard, you hit the backboard so hard and it shatters. And it, so you shatter the glass, you break the glass. And so Mark says, why don't you call it breaking the glass? And I said, well, what has that got to do with anything? He goes, well, when you take the basketball and you slam it against the back and it breaks, it's called breaking the glass. And and then I was, I thought, oh, my God, of course, it's perfect because it also means breaking the glass ceiling. So that was the title we got. And that title really helped us also to create the vision of the, of the film. But then when the WNBA got created and the ABL um, at that point didn't lost sponsors and some other things happened, which I – you know, again, it's a kind of a legal thing. I'm not sure if I'm, how much I'm allowed to talk about. But it became about the rise and the fall of the ABL. So the title is Breaking the Glass, the Rise and Fall of the ABL. So it took a total shift. You weren't, We weren't planning for any of that. It was like celebrating these athletes, celebrating the creation of this incredible uh, league and how much the women got paid and their insurance and how they could actually survive off of this. And there was actually something after high school for women, or after the Olympics even, for women because there was no pro league for women, only for men. So it was a big, big deal. And then when it started to crumble, then it became, uh, you know, just really heartbreaking. And so the interviews changed, and what we talked about changed. And yeah, it was it was a big shift we didn't expect. So then when we're editing it, and we're editing it, we were editing it as we went. So again, as we're editing, it's all about the the beauty of this league and how this league is being so successful, etc. And then, you know, two thirds of the way through, the whole thing changes and we have to change the focus. So that's what happened with that one. Meanwhile, before the focus changed, I got uh, local musicians from the Bay Area and one musician from from LA that I got the rights to their songs. I worked with a lawyer, created a, a contract and we got the use of the songs. We worked with ESPN Sports, got some game footage that they had shot. We got the rights to use that. So we had a lot of incredible ways in to using archive, archival footage, and we had enough money that we could pay 
for the songs themselves to, to use those songs. So we just knew it wanted to be, it had to have a lot of energy. It had to have a lot of action. It had to keep moving and it had to be fast. So that's what we were aiming for. And that's how we edited it. And then at the end, it slows down completely because it is not about the rise anymore. It is about the fall. And so the energy shifts, the, the editing style shifts, the energy shifts. And, um, you know, it's fascinating now that I just watched the Olympics and Teresa Edwards, I believe that's who it was, I'm pretty sure, who had been one of our people that we'd interviewed and who helped start help create that league, is, was the coach of the Olympic team and the uh, women's basketball Olympic, the Olympics recently, the Summer Olympics. Oh, wow. So it was neat to see her. And it was neat to see uh, several players went over to the WNBA and other players became coaches and all this stuff. But it was, it was a sad turn of events. There's no doubt about it. Well, and just the art of editing. I mean, how you can flow. And also that in any project, there's always got to be the shifts. You know, you can be on a movie and have to shift and then a documentary. What's the difference between like a movie and then a documentary in time frame of filming? Do, do you feel like documentaries can go on a little bit longer or? Oh, definitely. I and mean, then, documentaries can go on for years, right? Yeah. I do want to give a lot, a big shout out to Dina Munch, actually, who was my co-producer, co-director, co-editor for Breaking the Glass because she worked at Channel 2 already. And she was a professional editor for all sorts of different news and sports and everything. So she really was great at knowing how to pace that film and then how to switch it up. Without her, we would not have had the film we had. There's no doubt. So when you talk about how long does it take, this was a this was only a half-hour piece, which also actually, by the way, got picked up for um, the OWN network. But it was Oprah's channel, and she had a series for, of upcoming female filmmakers. So it was on that series, and it was also on KQD and a whole bunch of different PBS, something like 13 different PBS stations or something like that. So anyway, it, it, it had a quick turnaround. It, it had a pretty quick turnaround. We started working on it, and I would say probably within a year, we had it shot and edited. Maybe a year and a half, but it was pretty quick from the time we got chosen to do it and then the finishing time because we knew also we wanted to get it out. It was, it was a time issue. We wanted to get the film out when all this stuff was going on legally. So in that case... And we already had all the rights to everything, so we didn't have to wait to get the rights to things. Um, but when you're doing a major documentary, say you're doing something on the history of, oh gosh, you know, the history of Malcolm X or something, I mean, good Lord, that's going to take you years, uh, unless you have a sponsor or unless you have a full team. If you've got a research team, if you've got sponsorship, if you've got grants, then you can ha- hire a team to create, to get all the rights, to to contact all these people to make it all happen as a, as a team. But with, with us, with Breaking the Glass, it was Dina Munch and myself. That, that was our original team. And then Ellen Farmer, who was working for the ABL, who helped us uh, really get the whole thing started. But we didn't have, you know, we really didn't have any money. We didn't have any sponsors. We didn't have anything like that. We just, we just knew how to do what we were doing. Now, did you own your own equipment or did you have to rent it? We had our own... We, we did not have our own cameras, but the, but we used camera operators who had their own cameras. So they shot, like I brought on my friend Dan Veltri, who does work with the deaf video. So he shot certain things. I must have borrowed someone's camera here and there to get some of the interviews we had. Uh, and the editing systems we used, some of the editing system was through 
um, Dina Munch's system, whatever she had. I don't remember what she had, but um, we used whatever she had access to. She did that. And then I used a little bit at City College of San Francisco because I was teaching there just to do some short segments. We edited some short little trial segments there just to kind of get a peek of what it was going to look like. But back then, we edited all that on Avid which was quite expensive. You know, back then it was actually very expensive and Avid was very proprietary, so everything was Avid. The drives were Avid. The, everything, the keyboard was Avid. Everything was Avid. And, uh, you know, that changed. Now, of course, you can just use your own computer and you can use Final Cut. So everything has changed. Everything's leveled now. If you want to do things as a filmmaker, you can have just one computer, get a subscription to Premiere Pro or buy your version of Final Cut, or even just use DaVinci Resolve, which is free, and you've got access to editing right then and there. Uh, you can get free music uh, on on different platforms. You can create your music on GarageBand if you know how to create music or, or Pro Tools or whatever you know how to make your music on. There's so much different... The, play, the playing area is so much more level for, for women, for people of color, etc. That was not very attainable back in the day. And cameras were very expensive, and you were typically shooting on beta, mm-hmm. like beta SP. I think we shot a lot of that on beta SP. So those cameras, we had to use pretty high-level cameras. You know, that was that meant money to rent those or get those, however you got. I don't remember how we got them all, but we we shot those um, that a lot of that on beta SP. Well, and it's uh, really great that you are a shooter too. At- cinematographer because then you can go out and shoot it too i mean the more hats you wear (laughs) the easier it is you know i think i I think i think it is in one way um to be the director and also the cinematographer but i bet you could talk to a lot of people who do that for feature films and they're like oh my god it's a nightmare but you know it, it really does help i think to have a division of of labor that you do have a director and you have a cinematographer because you also need to be able to l- step back and look at what's being filmed and, and thinking what's going to do, what are you going to do next? Who are you going to grab next? What's going to be the next thing? You have to keep thinking all the time. What's your A role? What's your B role? What, what somebody says, how is that triggering with the next thing you're going to do? And a director isn't also thinking about lighting and is the tape rolling and what is the exposure and with beta, you couldn't even change lenses. So imagine that you're changing lenses on a film camera or even a, you know, something like a black magic, whatever. You're changing your lenses. You're changing your ISO. You're changing your F-stop. Do you want shallow depth of field? Do you want, you know, deep depth of field, deep focus? Well, with beta cam and with uh, camcorders, you, it, you don't get to switch lenses, so you're not thinking as much about that. But you certainly have a lot to think about as a cinematographer. The beauty of those camcorders, though, is your audio can go right into the camera Versus when you shoot for feature films, your audio is always separate. So you always have an audio person and your DP are separated out. But when you do camcorder work or documentary work with a camcorder, you don't need to separate that because the audio quality within the camcorder is quite high. Right. So you don't need as many people. And you don't want as many people either. If you're shooting something that's very dangerous, for example... You want a, a, a minimal crew because you don't want to be either you don't want to be noticed or you want to be the fly on the wall or you don't want um, to draw attention to yourself for whatever reason. And you also have to be careful as a filmmaker not to influence the subject. You always have to be careful about that. You, always, you have a responsibility to understand what's your role in what you're making. So 
for example, if I'm a, a you know a white female director and I go to a some place in Africa, for example, and I'm filming that with another white uh, cinematographer, then we're framing it based upon our American values, our American viewpoint, et cetera, et cetera. And you're, you're not getting necessarily what the subject might be fully experiencing. And they might also change their behavior because the camera is there versus say giving training somebody from that group to use the camera. And then you just help them to devise the film that they want to make. So you have to think about your responsibility when you enter, especially other cultures and other situations, that you have an influence on what gets filmed and, and a responsibility. So you have to think about what is my impact also on that culture. That's a great point. A I didn't even think about that. It's a yeah. lot of responsibility you have to think about, yeah. Yeah. And also coming up with the right questions and, and leading it. And I totally agree that if you're, if you're doing the camera and you have to ask the questions, that's a lot. I think it's great to separate that, um, have the visionary for the camera and then the director who I'm assuming on doc documentaries, you're probably the one asking the questions as well in the, interviews. The director typically does. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you kind of got to be separate <laughs> from the camera person. <laughs> yeah. Not the DP. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and again, it depends on how much how much money you got. Like, I mean, maybe if you're totally broke and you're making that documentary, you might be the DP and the asking the questions at the same time. You don't know. Right, yeah. Well, that's why I'm just saying that it's probably great to ha be able to wear a lot of hats, especially as a documentarian, where you can get a lot done versus I've got to go hire somebody. And if you have your own camera and you have your own equipment, it can make yeah. it easier to do it over time versus I have to rent it, I have to think of the cost, I have to pay somebody and all. Yeah, well, that's what's great about all these incredible choices of cameras you have now, right now, too. Because let's say you wanted to do a documentary on a the Taramahu in Indians, the, the, the running tribe out in Copper Canyon in Mexico. Mm -hmm. So I've been watching a few of those documentaries and you are, you know, you can do that with a GoPro because you are running with the people. So if you had three people, somebody's doing sound with that, somebody's directing and somebody's doing the camera work. Oh my God. That's first of all, you have to be able to keep up with the people who are running. Forget it and carry all that equipment and make sure you don't trip because it's all on dirt terrain typically. So you need to, uh, you sort of need to just use the GoPro and then you become the director and ask the questions and it all goes into the GoPro and maybe you have a, a sound device or something that you're at least recording on to to get good crystal clear sound. But yeah, you have to, sometimes you need to, you know, do the run and gun technique and that, that might just mean a GoPro or maybe you are going to get a drone shot and you're going to mix that up with the GoPro or you're going to be more... And you're going to mix that together with more standard shots shot on a tripod and uh, very, you know, very standard interview style stuff. So you've got to mix all that together somehow and make that look, uh, you know, like it was done seamlessly. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah uh, I was just thinking of that um, show on HBO. Um, it's the the psychologist, the behind the scenes, and she's doing therapy sessions. I mean, they must have had GoPros or something because there was no camera people in there, I don't think. But, you know, all the things hmm. that you can do if you have a GoPro or even the drone. I mean, what amazing right. shots the drones can give you. Yeah. You and a different yeah. perspective. And you don't have to pay for a, you don't have to pay for a helicopter operator. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and a DP all in the, all in the, in the helicopter. There was a, a, you know, a movement in the 60s about being like a fly on the wall. 
mm-hmm. where you don't you don't interfere with anything. You you basically you film whatever's going on and you try to be as uninterfering as possible. So you have that style which is very sort of cinema verite. I think that was the name of the time of, of it at the time and that was based on the Ziga Vertov from Russian history, film history. So, but you, what you are in Cinema Verite, you're trying to make it, you're, you're trying to be as unobtrusive as possible. So you have that style, and then you can go all the way to every single thing is planned. And that's a whole other style, right? Mm-hmm. So, but even if we think about the one with the guy with the octopus, what the heck is that one called? My Friend the Octopus or something like that. So he's underwater, right? So he's underwater, and he is being filmed from what I can tell, he's being filmed and he's filming some himself. So he must have some underwater GoPro on his forehead because when he reaches down to the octopus, he that looks like it's coming from his own camera, but yet other people must be filming him. But when you start talking about underwater filmmaking, that's a whole other thing going on, right? Yeah. But you don't have to worry about the audio. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I think it was um, my teacher, the octopus. Oh, that's or something right. Like that's that. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was beautifully shot. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I was thinking the same thing while I was watching. I was like, "How did they get all these shots?" You know, um, yeah, and know. and to get the timing of the octopus's journey, they must have had a ton of footage, and they had to go through that and find just when the octopus decided to appear. Yeah. Because there's no way. I mean, I don't know. I don't know enough about octopuses. Maybe they do come upon <laughs> like a dog. I don't know. Right. Yeah, that's when you would probably want to hire somebody who really knows what they're doing with an underwater rig. Yeah. You know, in addition to your own underwater GoPro unit or whatever you got on your head. Um, so, and then you're also a film teacher. So, how did you become a film teacher? Because of the same thing we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in in San Francisco, I was making documentaries and also working in deaf video, uh, videos for the deaf community, I should say. And there it was just hard to make a living. So I thought, well, how else can I enhance this? So I, I always had wanted to be a teacher. I thought it'd be cool to try being somebody who conveys the information just like the way that I was a student and to help people create find a way to, to show their vision. So... I got a job at City College of San Francisco, but it was an audio production, which was not necessarily my field. Originally, I was definitely a filmmaker and could have could have taught the actual filmmaking process and the, you know, the editing process and all that stuff. But I got hired to teach audio, beginning audio, which was less focused on film and, and audio for film and much more focused on sound recording, which I did not have that much experience in when I first was going to be interviewed for the job at City College of San Francisco in audio production, which had much more emphasis in, in like sound recording. Um, it did have an emphasis also in sound for film, sound for broadcasting, but it also had this component, pretty, pretty big component on doing sound for, for bands, doing live sound for bands, or also doing sound recording, multi, uh, multi micing and literally recording band in a, in a, in a recording studio. So I didn't have much experience with that. I had a lot of experience with with sound for film, but not in that sound recording process for bands. But I had several female friends who were sound engineers and were doing extremely well in their field, which had historically been such a male-dominated film. And they somehow got in there and they did very well. And um, I connected with them and they were so wonderful. They showed me... I went to live sessions with them. I went to recording sessions with them. I went to 
the Jazz Center uh, and learn from my friend Julie Ricks there, who also taught me how to, you know, what are all the buttons on the on the recording, uh, the the soundboard, etc. What is it all for? How does it all work? And it wasn't just her; it was m- many people. And from that experience, then when I went in to get the interview for audio, I felt much more that I knew what I was talking about. So I could talk about audio for film, audio for broadcasting, and audio for sound recording situations. And then I just kept learning as I went. And eventually, we got an Avid system for editing, which before we couldn't afford at a community college, imagine. And somehow we got a grant. I can't remember what it was from. And we got this grant, and we could afford to get all these Avids. So my department chair, Francine Podinsky, said, who would like to learn how to use Avid? I didn't learn on Avid. I learned on this really clunky system that was just, oh, my God, took forever. And um, so I volunteered to learn how to use Avid, and I didn't even have that many class sessions with the Avid trainers, and then suddenly I was teaching Avid. And the second you start teaching something, you have to you know, troubleshoot everything that goes wrong. So when you start doing that within your first semester – you may be still kind of learning with the students, but by the time you're done with that first semester, you've had to fix so many problems and learn the system with its insides and outs. And by that time, by the time you hit the second semester, you're already kind of on a roll and you, you now you're in a, in a good place. So I came in as an audio person teaching audio engineering and then got moved over to the video program. Oh, that's great. And, and you're also working in L.A., as well. So yeah, I teach I teach full time production stuff in uh, Oakland, up at Laney College, and then I teach one course at Santa Monica College, which has been online, of course, for a while now, and will continue to be. And that is typically like history of film or fil- it's in film studies. So history of film, or I look at a particular director. Like right now, I'm doing Pedro Almodovar. The film, all the films of Pedro Almodovar, and then looking at his style and, and content, etc. I did Quentin Tarantino, I did Ava DuVernay, Catherine Bigelow, Spike Lee. So trying to bring in also a, a wider picture of what is a, a great director, quote-unquote, <laughs> um, an auteur, if you prefer the term. And um, so I've been doing those courses, and also just critical, like how to look at movies and what are all the processes that go into making a film. So I teach, there's four classes there that I can teach or that I have been teaching and uh, every semester I get one. So this semester is Almodovar. If anybody wanted to be a documentary filmmaker or filmmaker for that matter, do you have any suggestions for them? I, I, I think it depends on which role you want to take. I think if, if you want to be a, the, like a director, a, a director of documentaries, I think you need to definitely take a class in um, public speaking for example, because you need to be able to speak with a whole bunch of different people. You need to be able to come up with questions on the on the fly. If you can join a debate team, even better. Or take an improv class. Uh, I always think anybody should take an improv class, no matter what field you're in, because you need to be able to think quick, especially quickly. And you're, if you're in film, you need to be able to think quickly. It's one of those things that something happens, you've got to be able to tackle it right away, especially as the director or producer. Cinematographer, same thing. You know, you've got to know you've got to know your lenses. You've got to know your ISOs. You've got to know lighting. So, I recommend always not just filmmaking classes, but photo photography classes, um, and learn how to shoot film and process it yourself. Learn how to make a print of a photograph yourself, so you understand that process. If you're an editor, if you can get your hands on a flatbed and make a couple of cuts on a flatbed on a piece of film, 
doing that, I think really gives you an understanding about where we are now. Yeah, I think if you're if you're a director, take an editing class, learn how to edit, because then when you're directing, you know how you it's it's you're editing it as you go. Don't just stay in one area. Go in all the areas so that you can get a feel for everything, then specialize in whatever it is you want to do. But documentary filmmaking or any filmmaking, curiosity, you've got to have curiosity, you've got to be able to work with a lot of different people. Be open-minded. Be really open-minded to what people are going to say. And, and open-hearted. Like, you're, you're going to meet a ton of different people than, than how you grew up or how you were raised or whatever. And if you're going to squelch that because you don't like what they say or you're going to just edit that, you say, oh, we're going to just edit that out because I don't like what they said. Or You're guiding the film to the point that that documentary is not coming to fruition in a natural way because of your political views or your you're stubborn and how it and how it has to look and how it has to be just be open work with people be be open to what other people's ideas are um have your vision but you know documentaries are tough to do by yourself so really work with the team find your team that you like and realize what you're bringing to the table because if you're interviewing and talking to people that are uh, of a different culture than your own for example you have got to be aware of what you're bringing to the table well, and I think you bring up a good point about um, being multi-talented in different areas of crew, um, because I think it really helps you. Editing helps with directing, yeah. um, you know, working with your D- or directing and DP, you know, just knowing all of that stuff is just going to help, you know, help you on set. Be respectful also. That's the other thing I would say. If you're working with crew, you need to be respectful how you talk to them. You need to realize they're probably working for less money than they would almost any other job. So talk with talk to people with respect. I mean, they're there working with you. They're helping you out. Talk to your subject with respect. Don't be patronizing or condescending. You, you, if you want a real story, you need to come from a place where you make a check on yourself, where you come in with humility and you may know what you want, but come in with humility and respect, and you're going to get something that, that flourishes versus something that's so tailored you. It's, un, it's not, uh, it's fake. I'll just say it like that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. This was really great having you and talking about documentaries and filmmaking in general. Thank you, Tammy. Great to be on the show, and I wish you good luck with your podcast, and, and good luck to all the filmmakers out there. Go out and make movies. Get your hands on cameras. Get your hands on editing systems. Get your hands on audio equipment. Get out there and make films. That's what it's all about. Thank you so much for listening. I encourage you to get out there and make a film. Reach out to your local filmmakers group to get involved and connect. Please subscribe to the show if you like it. And follow me on Instagram at Tammy Madero. Until we meet again, what's your story?